Welcome to All About HR. I'm your host, Tom Horn, and I'm on a journey to learn about all things HR. I'm documenting my conversations with thought leaders, HR professionals, and real employees about everything from recruiting, workplace of the future, benefits, you name it. We're all about HR. Let's go. We are back. Season four, episode two of All About HR. This is a conversation that I've been building towards for two, three years now uh, with a guest that I just, I highly respect and absolutely love the content, the conversation, the perspective almost every time. You know that band? Every time you listen, you're like, I like every song they play. That is this guest for me today. So uh, we're going to jump right into it. We've got a lot of ground to cover. So I'm going to skip all the how you doing, what's going on out there in the HR space. I'm going to introduce our guest. Karen Eber is a global leadership consultant, keynote speaker. Her TED Talk, How Your Brain Responds to Stories and Why They're Crucial for Leaders, continues to inspire millions. As the CEO and chief storyteller of Eber Leadership Group, Karen helps communities build leaders, teams, cultures, one story at a time. Karen works with Fortune 500 companies like General Electric, Facebook, Kraft, Heinz, Kate Spade, love their stuff, Microsoft. She guest lectures at universities including London School of Business, MIT, Stanford. She is a former head of culture, chief learning officer, head of leadership development at General Electric and Deloitte, and is a frequent contributor to Fast Company. Today, we're really going to focus on a Book Karen is publishing The Perfect Story How to Tell Stories That Inform, Influence, and Inspire with HarperCollins, available October 3, 2023. Karen, welcome to All About HR. Hi, I've been so looking forward to this. I'm so happy we get to talk today. This is, uh, hopefully, this is a really exciting stop on your book tour. I would imagine you're doing a lot of these uh, podcasts these days. I am. It's going to clock in around 50. 50. But this one's special. It is, it's, um, this is going to be a fun conversation. I, I appreciate you saying that. And now I have to listen to all 50 to see if truly <laughs> this ends up <laughs> turning out special. Um, I, I know for me it is. Um, it really is. And it, it's funny when people ask me about what I was doing with All About HR and why I was doing All About HR, one of the things I would tell people was, I wanted to have a different perspective to the podcast in the HR space. I didn't just want it being, I'm the global head of HR for GE, and I wrote a book, and that's what the podcast is about, which you kind of see what I did there. That's exactly what this is about, and, and, and it's perfect because I want the perspective to be someone learning and growing and really just organically coming out of the community, and that's why you are here. And the fact that you are someone that's had such a distinguished career, that's doing 50 other podcasts, that has an awesome book coming out, I'm super excited to break the mold because that's how excited I am to have you on this podcast. So welcome. Well, it's a delight for me and I'm learning too. So I'm looking forward to our conversation. Where let, Let's start at the beginning, or at least I'll at least share where you know I felt so excited and connected to follow you and get you here eventually on this podcast. You were on my hit list from day one. So it took a lot. Finally, I saw the book and got the guts to invite you on. So I, I do want to start with your career and, and I want to talk briefly about it because this book is so exciting uh, and the stories in it are so exciting. I want to make sure to focus there, but just your perspective on culture and creating culture and engagement and empathy where like, 
where does that come from? I look at your titles, I look at your career, but like, how do you, how did you focus on this space? How did you come to focus and become an expert in this area? Because I felt like you had a hundred percent betting average when you talk about this. Is it natural? Did it come from a job? Where did your perspective in the space come from? Like everybody, it's probably a career path that weaves and is a little convoluted. I started out wanting to be a nurse, if you can believe that. And in college, made a pivot towards psychology and wanted to focus on how I can help people be their best in professional environments. And so my education and internships and all of that were in these spaces of adult learning and education, leadership development, and helping people do their best performance. And I started out in roles where I was a consultant within an organization that worked across the organization to do that. And then that evolved into Deloitte and and other things. And so I have actually been a person that that I'm working in where I got my degree and I'm applying it. And it's just deepened along the way. And so you know, I started out my very first job, I was developing training for different groups. And that broadened because not everything is a training solution to how do you um, develop people back when like knowledge management was a filing cabinet. So it was a very different time. Um, But as I've moved through my career, you start to realize as things get more complicated with technology, as teams become more global, and we take on these crazy projects, and the world is getting more complicated how you relate to each other, the environment you work in, the leader you have, the team you're on, like all of that impacts everything. And so um, I wanted to really dig in and figure out how I could do more of this. And when you put your lens on something and you really focus the aperture, you start to see what works and doesn't work. And you start to see patterns of common mistakes. You know, I do a lot of work with teams from C-suite all the way down, and there's not a huge difference in the mistakes that are made on the teams. And so you start to realize like, oh, there's some basic things that happen in the day-to-day environment that are hard or that people just don't have a background on. And I found that one of the things I do think I have an innate talent for is what do people need to know to be successful? How can you help them? recognize why it's hard and why it's okay that they're not being successful today. How do you help remove the shame and the blame and then give them the tools to get there? And so it's just been keep, you know, going down the path and deepening that along the way. I love that. It's uh, an innate curiosity uh, to keep asking questions as as you go down that path, it sounds like. My mom would tell you that I was the child that asked why all the time. (laughs) So it's truly one of those, like most people, you look back and you can see the steps that led you here. But if I stood back at that person who is 21, 22, I would have never predicted this is where I would be. So, Well, welcome to where you are. So <laughs> I'm still trying to accept it, like all of us. <laughs> like all of us. That's the, per- yeah, that, that's the disclaimer at the end. I think this is a nice bridge into the storytelling is, you know, there is a lot of data out there, especially in the HR, in the leadership, in the organizational development space. There's a lot of data there. There's a lot of commonalities. You know, when someone asks me what the trends are of HR and for work, I kind of look at like, well, what are we coming out of? Are we coming out of, we have all the section employee, we have so many employees that we don't have to care about culture and then it starts to fade and then there's this big turnover and everything seems to be this pretty continuous wheel and there's lots of data and there's lots of evidence but 
how do you get that nuance? How do we get the global workforce? How do we get different organizations to really not just understand the data and understand what's going on, but form a story and understand their story so that they can leverage this and stop this wheel of engaged, not engaged, hire a bunch, fire a bunch, that I feel like it's just a continuous trend wheel. So I love that that's what you identified. How did that take you how did understanding these trends and following the specific path you've known you've been on since college, how has that turned into where you're at now with the book, Storytelling, The Focus? Yeah, let me give a little bit of a long answer to bear with me, because it, it really is looking at how work has changed. You know, my father worked in a bank, banking industry, Fortune 500, um, where people went to work at nine and they went home at five and you didn't do work on the weekends. And if he went on a business trip, he was given a cash stipend in advance. And it was like this completely different way yeah. of work. Even at the time I got into work, which is over 20 years ago, it was different and it just exploded with the internet. And so in his era and for many elder Gen X and, and boomers, this like, why are we talking about engagement? Why are we doing all of these things? Seems a little silly because they just grew up in a different era where there wasn't a need to focus on that stuff because there was time for separation and thinking and resilience and all of that. And I feel like if you're Gen X or younger, you've been on basically your whole career and that's only increased as we've put right. mobile phones in our pockets and stuff. And that is where I think the need for all of this came to be because you had this explosive growth with the internet where you suddenly have many people that are being promoted based on their technical ability but not having any leadership development. And it introduced this new era where we're putting people in positions and not equipping them with expectations or tools. And that is incredibly mm -hmm. hard. And then we start to hear questions about work-life balance. And so this has only increased and will continue to increase because work has taken up a different space in our lives mm -hmm. and the type of work and the choices that we need. And so I feel like the need to really be thoughtful about the environment we're creating to deliver business outcomes, but also to attract and retain talent requires different thought. And I feel like we tend to over-rotate on, on some stuff, which we can talk about that more. Um, so all of that lays the groundwork for here I am trying to create better workplaces and equip leaders with tools that do make it better and try to get companies and, and my own leaders and organizations to invest in technology or to invest in leadership programs or things where maybe one or two people in the organization have the ability in the budget to say yes, but like 50, 100 have the ability to say no. And when you're that person yeah. trying to convince them and you get a bunch of no sayers, you have to get creative because what I needed is all those people that would say no to slow their no and help me convince the, the people that own the budget. And I started to use stories to connect with them differently, to lift them out of their day to day and what they were facing and help them think about it different and to relate in a different way. And as I moved into roles like a, the, the head of culture role in one of the businesses at General Electric, I had 90,000 employees in 150 countries working in the business I was in. And the only way you shape culture is when someone thinks like, what does this mean for me and what do I want to do? 
And to do that, that means you have to touch each person and help them have things to think about. Like, what are the expectations? What do you want? And that's not the values on the website. And so I found storytelling was such a helpful way for me to touch each person and and help shape those things that we wanted to have our leaders do and our employees do. I love your long answer. That is fantastic. <laughs> they won't all be that long, I promise. <laughs> this answer, hopefully, side shoot, super random question jumped in my head from the start of that story. If Dolly Parton yeah. rewrote nine to five right now, <laughs> would it be reflective of the glory days of that was better? Would it be that we've evolved? Like, if put yourself in Dolly Parton shoes, rewriting nine to five. What's the vibe of nine to five as a song in two thousand twenty-three? Um, first, can I use that as a potential article because that is brilliant? Um, I'm noting that I might indeed do of that. You could. You, you That's a really good question. Um, it would probably be something like "Always On." I don't know. I. I I don't know. But, you know, if you take Dolly Parton as an example, she goes out in public and you have no idea it's her because she wears wigs all the time and she looks dramatically different. So she has her own like, here's what I do when I'm off so no one knows. And so, um, you know, we're in always on, but we all have to think about what is our off and how do we protect that and what does that look like? And um, gosh, it's so much easier when you have leaders that you're working with and teams that you're working with right. that support that. I need to come back to you on this one of what that would I'll be. I'll just read the article. A... <laughs> I love it. It's such a good question. And, and also just to know, I'm in business development. Slow the no, trying to get mm -hmm. to the two people that can say yes and get the other 100 to 50. Like That is such a great perspective of just directly my day-to-day -day, uh, work. And that's what I'm trying to do. And I keep having these great transitions. I'm supposed to start the show with what are you listening to now, but I keep getting these great transitions from stories. So we're gonna, I'm going to ask you that at some point. We're going off the rails here a little bit. I just want to thank you for that because that's the world I live in. And I think that's a great perspective. I have a meeting with my team later today and Slow Their No is definitely going to be a highlight of that. And just one thing on that, you know, a lot of times when people think about storytelling, they try to think of it has to be a personal story or it's got to be a story about the topic at hand or whatever. So often my ability to slow and know comes from a story that has nothing to do with the topic at hand, um, especially when it's something that people are really defensive about. So I worked with a leadership team that um, was facing really significant quality issues, like in the millions. Mm -hmm. And every time every quarter every month they'd sit down to review financials and they would see the number and instead of what's happening here why is this happening it would be a conversation about let's put more operations in place and more rules and more procedures and that's not what was needed and so i joined one of their meetings and i talked about uh, nasa and the apollo the challenger and columbia missions where tragically astronauts died and in those after action reviews that NASA had, they found out that people knew there were mistakes, that they were not escalating, or if they were, people weren't doing anything about it. They thought someone else would handle it. And it, it came out to be like this whole terrible miscommunication and people not feeling safe enough to communicate the way they needed. 
And what NASA did is they put this whole safety culture in place where anyone can stop a launch at any point, even if it's SpaceX or some other organization. They've really tried very hard to change their culture and create this place where it's okay. And so I'm working with this team and I tell them this story, which has absolutely nothing to do with their quality issues. But what happened is that they became less defensive because it was almost this recognition of, oh, I get it. Others have this problem too. And it's okay. It's okay for us to admit we have this problem. We don't have to feel shame or blame each other. We can really start to talk about what's needed. So part of that slow their no is sometimes telling a story that has nothing to do with the example at hand, but reinforces the points you want to make. Now, I, I know there you talk about that in the book too, about the parallel story can have a big, how it can have a big impact. Um, which, which chapter is that? Tell me. Tell. Let's stay on this a little bit. Go a little bit deeper, because um, I, I think that's that is probably one of the number one mistakes I see in businesses and companies that I've worked with and for is everything's literal. Everything's pointed straightforward. Everything's operations. Everything's structured. How can you or listeners and how can people leverage how can we do what you just described what are some of the ways to to learn to do that and, and integrate that into our our business workings let me tell you how not to do it first because i think that's probably more Sold. important so before i opened my company i was in a, a head of leadership development role at deloitte where i was putting together leadership development for the owners the principals and partners and directors and one of the topics was negotiations because that's a huge part of consulting and advising and it can feel intimidating and really hard and we had a wonderful set of course work and uh, it was two days over the night there was a dinner and I brought in a um, hostage negotiator from the New York Police Department because the principles they were learning in the class were very similar to some of the same things that he did on the job and I thought well this will be fun yeah. you know I, I wanted to have the cool factor who doesn't want to have dinner with this New York NYPD yeah. you know hostage negotiator super cool and it completely flopped because he's telling these stories. He was involved with a situation that informed the movie Dog Day Afternoon. So pretty heavy stuff. And he's telling these stories and every single person there, like their eyes got wide and you could see they were thinking like, oh my gosh, this is nothing like I am doing. I'm just trying to sell services for you yeah. know this technology project. Holy cow. And instead of hearing him share some of the same things he's doing to build rapport and to de-escalate and to sense his timing and what are some of the different techniques he uses to move forward in the negotiation or or understand what the person wants they just heard it as completely different and i didn't realize because this was my fault i didn't realize until we were too far down this evening that it wasn't landing the way i wanted what he did was fine. What they needed was almost like translation of how did that yeah, apply to that. them? How is that meaningful? Exactly. How can they still take what he's saying and, and just appreciate a different perspective and different stories? And so what not to do when you're telling this parallel story, meaning a story that's a completely different context and meaning, but reinforces the takeaway is you have to meet the audience where they're at. You've got to help understand what their current understanding is and, and what might be challenges in how they're understanding things so that you can connect them to it. Because as we listen 
or we read, we make assumptions. And if you're not helping connect that person to where they are and where you want to get them to, they're going to make assumptions that go off in the wrong direction. So you can take so many different things that have nothing to do with your situation and tell a story about it, but it's the way you connect it to the person, how you make sure they understand and, and translate it throughout that's going to make the difference on it. So how can you do that? What are you know? Uh, <laughs> I was yeah. even like pausing to answer, but like no, really, like like what are some of the the actual techniques you can do as you're doing it? Like you have that awareness. What are some of the bridges? Yeah, yeah, yeah. And that particular example, just to do one with context, Perfect. what probably should have happened is I should have paused him as he was setting the scene for something. I should have paused and asked the group, like, do you have a situation related to this? What does this make you think of? Or offer statements, but pull them into it. Because what happened is they were watching something and they just kept thinking, this isn't me. This doesn't relate to me. Holy cow, this guy is doing this with lives on the line. I could have been that bridge asking the questions to make sure they were tracking and kind of pausing along the way and having more discussion. I think that would have made a difference. What he could have done differently had we known this is the way it was going to go. As I would have sat with him to map out the audience and say, hey, look, let's talk about what we want them to come away thinking differently or doing differently. Let's think about what they're feeling about negotiations and what we want them to feel. And then let's map like, okay, when you say this, let's let's talk about how we can translate that to be meaningful to them. So you're saying, you know, I'm, I'm sitting outside the Waco compound and I know that's not in New York, but first thing that came to my mind. I'm sitting outside the building in Times Square and, um, and you know, then translate that to, you know, just like you're about to walk in the room with the negotiation with your client. There's little things like that that we could have done that is really thinking about what the story is and stopping to back up and say, this isn't about the story. This is about the audience. How can I make sure they're going to track and understand this by thinking about what I want them to know differently by the end of it, what I want them to do differently by the end of it, how I can move them forward and what they're feeling. I love that. It, it brings me back to when I go to conferences, my favorite speakers are the ones that aren't you know, HR, organizational leadership type of people. It's people that, and, and I'm always thinking, why were they booked and how's their story going to relate to what I'm here for? I can't even figure it out in my head. I'm definitely going to this session. And I'd say 90% of the time I leave going, yeah, good. Like, cool. Because it's, I don't expect it. It's something I know it's there. I just can't figure out how it happens. And that's what gets me excited for their stories uh, and their presentations, you know, like, and what's really cool about that is you're going to have more ahas in your head as you listen to them. If there's enough connection, you're going to be having your own realizations of like, oh, yeah, that's like this. And, oh, I could do that. And that's really interesting because it's a different context. Like there's more inner dialogue going for you, which can create more meaning. If it was a situation about... um I don't know, that was very similar to a project you just did or were, were bidding on, then you would be so caught up in your emotions about that project and the experiences of it that you just might be having this mental battle with the speaker of like, no, that's not what my experience was. Or, yeah. oh, yeah. yeah. And so sometimes that difference in story and setting can create a more profound impact. I, I love that. I just want to highlight too, Sarah Thomas, she was the first female referee in the NFL, like that was one of my favorite. And I was at a 
restaurant convention. Like, I mean, it was just so starkly different and so powerful that uh, her story uh, and what she gained from that story has, has stuck with me ever since. And I've incorporated several different pieces from that story in a completely different setting. So that's, I uh, wanted to give a shout out, one of my favorite speakers. Uh, if you ever get to see Sarah Thomas, really, really cool. I don't care what your job is. Love it. So I'm going to take a quick pause here. We're going to take a quick pause here. And then when we come back, you started touching on what's going on inside your head when you're hearing these stories, these internal battles you can have. I want to kind of get into what goes on inside people's heads as they're hearing stories and talk about the science behind this. We'll be right back. All right. It is time for the HR Hot Sauce with Karen. Are you ready? I am ready. What is the best job you have ever had? The one I'm in now. My favorite answer. What's one phrase at work that drives you nuts? Oh, there are so many. Um, culture doesn't or culture doesn't eat strategy. What's that saying? I can't even say it. <laughs> it's so much. Culture doesn't eat strategy for breakfast. Don't. It's awful. Do you like working on rainy or sunny days? Both. Rainy days give me good time for writing and reflection. Sunny days give the mood boost and energy lift. That is me, and I wish I heard that answer more often. That's great. How can someone make your day at work? Either I get to see an aha moment that they have where they unlock new thinking or they remove some obstacle that they have, um, or they tell me something that they read or listened to about mine that they loved. Fantastic. Best useless skill? Of mine? Of um, yours. Yeah. Of mine, okay. Well, uh, I, what came to mind is I play the piccolo in a community band, and so it's fun, and you know we do put on concerts, but it's not changing anything, and um, I am extremely average, so there you go. I'm sure it brings joy, but we'll count it. Uh, incidentally, my favorite musical instrument all through elementary school is a piccolo. I don't know why, I just always loved piccolos. I love that, amazing. Super rare. Mild, medium, hot, or nuclear? Mild, medium, hot, or nuclear? Hot. Favorite interview question to ask or be asked? I don't have a favorite, but I'll tell you the one that I don't love is, um, so how'd you get started in storytelling? <laughs> Cross that off the list. <laughs> <laughs> Finally, favorite song to bring you out of a funk? Okay, disclaimer. The song I've been listening to a lot lately is because of the storytelling, and it is Taylor Swift, All Too Well, 10-minute version. I just love the way she weaves the story through it, and it builds, and so right now it is that one. That is a great song to be talking about. I love it. All right, we're done with the HR Hot Sauce. Let's get back to the show. All right, and we are back. That was a great HR Hot Sauce, uh, Karen. When we paused, we were talking about kind of the neurology of, or I didn't use that word, but what goes on in your head when you're hearing stories? What can stop you from connecting to stories? Why do some stories connect? Why do some stories not? What Take us through that piece of storytelling, the receiving storytelling, um, and how to, when you're telling the stories, connect to those receiving people, the people listening, uh, and understand what's going on in their heads. 
There's a few different things that are happening in the brain. Um, but let me start with the first one, which is we are not hardwired for stories. I hate when people say we're hardwired for stories. That's like saying you're hardwired to run a marathon. Like, right. yeah, you've got physical components, but you're not going to walk out and do it without any practice or preparation. So um, you're not hardwired. When you are listening to words, there's this really small part of your brain that lights up. It's called uh, Broca's area or Wernicke's area. It's like the size of a walnut. What happens is, as your your sense of hearing or your eyes, um, a sense of vision, are taking in the information, your brain looks at what's coming in and it compares it to your internal dictionary. And it says, like, do we know this word? Is this in our dictionary? And if yes, comprehension. If no, it falls into I don't know what that means, which you then seek it or you forget it. So this basic comprehension is happening all the time with a really small part of your brain that's activated. Um, not much happens with that though, which is why we sit in a meeting and maybe 20 minutes later, we struggle to remember half of what's discussed because there's nothing happening committing it to memory or having you interact with it. It is pure comprehension. When you start listening to a story, so if I talk about walking down the beach and I feel the warm sand between my toes and the wind is blowing my hair and there's a seagull crying ahead and you hear the waves crashing on shore and um, you can almost taste the salt on your lips, your brain starts lighting up in those respective areas of your senses. And so you go from a real estate perspective from something the size of a walnut to something that's more dynamically engaging more parts of your brain, which you know, real estate 101, more space means more, you know, better outcomes and stuff. But that's just a small part of what happens because as we take in information through our senses, they get stamped with emotions. So it's a little bit like if you take a photo on your phone and you swipe up, it's stamped with the date, the location, the f-stop, all of the things about the photo, like without you doing anything, it's immediately stored on it. That's what happens with our senses as we're taking in information through our senses and having experiences, they get stamped with emotions and they get stored in our long-term memory. And the more dynamic, the more emotional or impactful they are, the stronger these, these memories are. What happens when we're facing a choice or we're encountering a situation, our brain goes to all of those past experiences and looks at them to inform the yeah. predictions for the choices that we're going to make. Right. Our brain spends the majority of its time making predictions because you want to be on your front foot, not your back foot, because it, it helps you um, respond and not react, which can be really draining and dangerous and, and have you be in a sense of danger. So when you have all of this information stored and your brain uses that to make predictions, it's going to help you make choices. Where storytelling comes into play in all of that is the more you're engaging senses and emotions, the more you're impacting what's stored and informing future decisions. So a great story can have you commit things to memory without realizing it. It gets stamped with emotions so that when you face these situations, your brain automatic automatically knows what to do. So for example, opening story of my TED Talk is about this woman, Maria, who's walking into the elevator at work drops her phone, and it goes down that little opening straight down the elevator shaft to the basement. And she has to go through this process of getting it back. And it's a, a story really about leadership and how you treat people. But what happens is I get messages from strangers all over the world telling me that they hold their phone tighter yeah. when they walk into an elevator now because they've heard this. And this is 
they hear the story, they experience a discomfort, which gets stored in their long-term memory. And the next time they're about to walk into the elevator, the brain says, oh, we know something's dangerous here. Hold on to your phone. And so stories have this ability to create these experiences to inform what our memories are, to help inform future decisions and give people the chance to not only um, decide what they want to do now, but inform potential decisions in the future. I love I, I love that initial story. I, I think it just the reason I love it is because it did make me feel a certain way. It did make me remember it. And I think that's one of the how do you how do you remember all these stories? How do you store in your brain all these different stories? Like do you just have to be good at memorizing things? Is there a is is there a way? Is it just the best stories will connect you with you in the right way. But for me, I love stories, but I feel like I'm always going, wait, what's that story for this time? Is there any technique you can help me with? Is there anything out there? Um, and, and no is a perfectly fine answer. There are. The first is you have to feel something towards the story. If you're not feeling any interest or excitement or intrigue, the story's going to be flat and bland. And we've all sat through versions of that, that that isn't fun. So anytime you find something that piques your interest, like you've heard a story or you note something. Um, I play the flute. I was playing in a retirement home in a holiday concert and in the center of the room was a disco ball. And I was like, that is fabulous. And I filed that away in my head. Like, I'm going to do something with this. I don't know what, but um, that's just fabulous. If I end up in a retirement home, it has to have a disco ball because why not? So, it's a bit of a curiosity as you move through the world of what are those things that are catching your attention. Um, The second piece of it though, is you need a place to capture your stories because most often you'll have these things that are interesting and then you just think, I'll remember it later. And then when it's time to tell a story, you can't remember what it is. It was something about a retirement home. I can't remember what. So Whatever works for you, for me, it is, um, I use an app on my phone and I just dump ideas in there when they come up. A lot of it is, um, I I personally think in stories because I do so much of this and so examples will come to me quite often and I know, okay, that's a potential story. I capture it and then every now and then I move them into a spreadsheet for a longer list when I wanna be able to scan if I am trying to tell a story and I don't know what one could be. Um, but having a place to put it is important. Noticing the energy around those things that capture your attention is important. Thank you for that. I will start using my Note app. One of my goals this year was to start using the Note app on my iPhone just to like put stuff down in real time. And I go back and look at it, and it's crazy. I'm like, there's actually some stuff in there, and I forget about it, and it's all over the map. But it really is It really is helping. I'll tell you, I s- I switched to Google Keep for that reason, because the notes app is just like this running list that's really hard, whereas in Google Keep, you can have checkboxes, and it's easier to sort and filter and categorize, and so that's my go-to for capturing ideas. But I do some in the notes when I want to be able to expand on the ideas a little bit. Maybe I'll make that pivot. And I'll say one story from your book is right off the bat is the, uh, the story about Uh, don't eat the crayons. That resonated for me. Um, And you can talk a little bit about the story and and I kind of tell you what resonated. And and I see on the book cover behind you, there's actually a crayon. Uh, My brain had not made that connection. So now it's maybe it did and I didn't know. And that's one of the reasons why. I don't know. Um, But 
that story really hit with me because of the way you took the world coming at you, people coming at you with this question. And I'll let you tell the story. And then you twist it. And to me, that resonated strongly with something that, you know, I, it, it's so minuscule, but it just totally resonated with that clutching your cell phones you walk onto an elevator type of reflex for me. So uh, would you mind sharing that story uh, uh, from the book? It's, it, it was one of my favorites. Yeah. Can we trade crayon stories? I'll tell you one yeah, and then you I'll, tell I'll me tell yours. You my story. <laughs> okay. Right. Um, so the reason there is a crayon in the cover is because of the opening story of the book. I have two different color eyes. I have a brown eye and a green eye. And it is my favorite thing about myself. It's always made me unique and I've loved them. Around the time I started to get into school, though, I realized that, well, I loved it. Other people thought it was really weird. And you start to notice these patterns in conversations where someone will be talking to you and their words slow down dramatically and they just stop mid-sentence and you see their eyes going back and forth between both eyes. And I know exactly what's happening and where it's going to go. Exactly. Yep. Your brain's like, here it comes. And so it always starts with, did you know you have two different color eyes? To which my response is usually, no. (laughs) Like, what do you mean? Did you know? Of course. And then it goes into, um, I know a dog with two different color eyes. Thanks. And you're like, thank you? What am I supposed to do with that? Uh, usually followed by David Bowie. Mm-hmm. He had two different color eyes, which he didn't. He had an accident and one of his pupils were dilated. And it would be this barrage of questions. You know, how did that happen? What color eyes do your parents have? Do you see different colors out of each eye? And like the silliest questions, your answers aren't even important because they just keep piling on the questions. And it eventually ends with how did that happen? And this thing that I loved about myself suddenly became this burden where they would be calling other people over. Hey, come over here. You've got to see her eyes. And there'd be, you know, 10 people looking at you like you're this weird sideshow in a circus. And it just felt like a burden. And I got tired of it. And I one day told the story of how when I was um, a young child, I was born with with um, brown eyes like most uh kids I had the same color eyes and I was in my room coloring one night and I had that big box of crayons that you have for me it was a cigar box yeah. but we all have it you know we have your perfect crayons and your peeled crayons and your broken crayons and I was coloring and I was hungry and dinner wasn't going to be for a few hours so I picked up a green crayon and I sniffed it and it smelled kind of interesting and I took a nibble and it tasted pretty good so I ate it And then I ate all the green crayons in the box and I woke up the next day and my eye was green and I would tell that story and then I would wait and I would be quiet and inevitably what happens. Yes. The pause. People would look at me sideways. Like, is she for real? Like I can't tell if she's being serious or not, but what happened in that moment is an energy shift because it was no longer this weird thing of why I was different and people being called over. It became this energy shift. And so I would admit that I did not eat the crayon, that my eyes were naturally two different colors, but it changed our interaction. And they would start laughing and I would start laughing and they would realize all the crazy questions they asked and would apologize. But we had a different exchange. And that exchange led to meaningful connections, even to the point where some 20 odd years later, people tell me they think of me when they see crayons. And so 
I wanted to share that as the opening story to show this isn't just about telling a story about, you know, to give a presentation at work. It's about human connection and energy and how stories have a way to to reinforce that or even shift that in awkward moments. That's a that's a great story. It's it allowed you to change the entire story of the conversation, the perspective, kind of take that power back uh, for yourself. Yeah, I I did laugh because my friend does have one of the dogs with whatever. So when you said like, I was like, I immediately thought of that, and I was like, I was like, oh my I god, know what I know what dog with that. <laughs> like, and like, just what you want, right? Like, thank you. Yes, I'm just like a dog. Thank you. Yeah. Yeah, it's, you know, my crayon story is my name is Tom Horn, H-O-R-N-E. There's an E at the end of Horn. And the sheer number of times that my name comes up or I'm being introduced or I'm in a group and it's horny, horny, you're horny, your name's horny. And it's just, it's like one of those, like, (laughs) come on, like, like every, it's like, it's like the power gets sucked out of me once that happens. So, yep. In college, you know, college kids, it was like that times 10. It was like the epicenter of Tom being called horny all the time. And whenever I would hear that, I would go, no, 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 it's horny. Family's French. We immigrated to America. And there didn't used to be an E. And we put an E on it to really kind of like help show who we're talking to. Were they educated? Did they know it was silent? You know, were, did, like, were they going to make a joke if the joke was there and let it pass? So we really did that so we could really understand who we were talking to and just ha- you know, be able to direct ourselves better in this new world. And we'd stop and people just stare at me and look at me. And they were like, oh, crap. I'm like, what? Did he just? I'm like, no, I'm just kidding. It's it's Horn. I have no clue why there's an E. But you say the without an E, Horn without an E. Come on. And then everyone laughs. And then it just, poof, goes away. So for me, maybe I used it a little bit more kind of condescendingly. But like the that was never the goal. The goal was to take the power back for me and to rephrase and just change that whole perspective so I didn't have to deal with Horny from those same people for the next 20 times I've interact with them to like, make sure it never stuck to me. So that, w- that was kind of my, like, take the power Completely. back. Was, like, just change the perspective. It makes such a difference in the energy shift. And it's not just, it gets it off you. The people then realize like, Oh yeah, that was kind of silly. Yeah. Which is huge. Yeah, and it was kind of silly and I was never offended, but I just didn't want to have to like have that always be a thing. But you said it, it sucked all the energy out of you. Like that's exactly what it was for me. This thing that was joyful to me, like left me feeling depleted. And why should you feel bad about anything about yourself? And I know that we're privileged and this happens to people all the time, wherever you can reclaim I that. Because I felt a little bit guilty about over, over claiming sometimes, but uh, thank you for that. Two things I want to touch on before we land this wonderful story conversation that we're having. The word pause came up several times. I'm in business development. I use it very strategically. I love the idea of the pause. Can we just talk about your perspective, how you use a pause? Yeah, I talk about pause as a character in my story and communications. Hmm. Our tendency in person or virtually is fill every moment of air, especially because if I stop talking, someone else is going to jump in. But that's not what happens. Because if you're not incorporating any pause, then whomever you're speaking with, their brain can't catch up 
no matter what you're saying, no matter what I'm saying to you, your brain has its own internal dialogue. And so if I'm trying to introduce an idea to you or make you feel something or help you connect with something, you need that pause for it to land and for your brain to think about and accept like, okay, I, I, I agree with this or I don't agree with this or that, that lands on me in a way that I feel it. And pause is so important for that. It's the brain friendly thing that allows all of us to internalize. Our tendency is cram every <laughs> single moment of time with words and gestures and animation. And that just leaves us feeling fatigued, especially in this hybrid world. When we're on different screens, you don't have the same nonverbal cues you have when you're in the room. And so pause is more important than ever. You need to use it and not be afraid that someone's going to jump in and interrupt it. And the way you do that, I use pause um, frequently, but I use it when I'm trying to land a point. And I will often accelerate as I'm leading up to the point and you hear a change in my voice and my inflection, and then I pause. And then when I come back, I'm usually a little different pace, a little different pitch. And so that too is getting the listener's brain to say, oh, there's something different here. Experiment with incorporating it and experiment with your cadence around it and people won't jump in, but it will allow for them to, to understand. What I'll also say, though, is um, I, another rant of mine is I cannot stand when speakers say, let me say that again, or let me repeat that to you. We don't need you to say it again. What we need you to do is be quiet so we can say it in our own brains. If you have done it right and you've led up to it in a way where you can tell from the timber of the voice and the cadence that this is a big deal, you don't need to repeat it. Listening is active, but... A hundred percent of understanding is retroactive, be it by milliseconds, seconds, right. weeks. You have that story that hits you in the shower two weeks and you're like, I got it. Um, but understanding is totally retroactive. Um, and that pause allows you to catch up, allows you to understand, allows things to sink in. I love that. When there's no pause, it's a little bit like the the um, cartoons with the Roadrunner and Wiley Coyote, where uh, the steamroller would roll over the coyote and he would be flattened to the size of a paper. And um, that's what happens when there's no pause. Like the words just run you over and there's no way for them to make an impact. It always goes back to an analogy I learned early on. It's about Eric Clapton and they called him slow hand because... It's not about the notes he played. He could play any note invented on a guitar, but the notes he didn't play were the most important part of the song. And because it helped you understand and take in and feel the space uh, around you. And I think that's a lot of the same thing. Yeah. Karen, I could listen to you and tell stories. I look at my notes. I'm like, cool. I touched like 3% of what I wanted to talk about, but I got out 120% of what I wanted to get out of this conversation. So, um, I, I, this has been fantastic. I really appreciate your time. I cannot wait. You can find the book on Amazon. You can pre-order it. I pre-ordered mine. I did it before I even, like, I knew I was pre-ordering this before there was even a podcast. So uh, I'd encourage everyone to go out and check it out. But Karen, it, what, as we're, as we're finishing our story, what's, what's the, what do you want people to take away from this conversation I think to the extent to which you can have curiosity, 
work is better. Um, to have curiosity, you have to be rested and not feel fully right. stressed and and have the space for it. But curiosity can lead to connections. It can lead to new ideas and understanding. It can lead to stories. Um, I can always tell when when work is out of balance for me because I feel like I don't have any time for curiosity and I know I need to make shifts. But the more you have that, I think the more you can create better workplaces and um, enjoy yourself more. I love it. Where can people find you, Karen? I'll put it all on the notes, but let's hear it. Yep. My website's the easiest way to find me, which is my name, K-A-R-E-N-E-B-E-R.com. All right. We got everything there. Karen, this has been fantastic. Thank you for joining. I've learned all about HR because HR should be telling that story. HR are storytellers, and that's how you get outside of the... That's how you get outside of... You're just the HR. You're the policeman. You're the person that hires and fires, have a story, bring approach, integrate some of these pieces, buy the book, take the journey and make sure you pause along the way. Karen, thank you so much. Thank you. Everyone, thank you for listening and we'll see you back here soon. Understand, engage, inspire and retain your people like never before. People Elements Employee Experience and Engagement Solution delivers powerful intelligence, giving you the confidence to act. To learn how you can gain a better understanding of your employees, please visit us at peopleelement.com.